Good morning. I love that song that we started, that we sang about Yahweh and his faithfulness. It reminded me of Psalm 100, which is my favorite psalm. So I just want to read a couple of verses from that psalm. And uh, I'm going to uh, translate where, where the Hebrew wrote Yahweh, his name. I'm going to translate that in, into I am. Normally it's translated Lord, but it kind of means I am. So listen to this. Be reminded of his faithfulness. So the psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to I am, all the earth. Serve I am with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And the last verse gives us one reason why. For I am is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. What an amazing truth. He is faithful. And because of his faithfulness, we are set free. That's enough for a sermon right there, so we can all go home, right? <laughs> Sorry, not quite. My name's Len. I'm one of the elders here, and I have the privilege to explore God's word with us. For me, uh, making a sermon, especially when I've got two months to think about it, it's like going through a pregnancy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's a lot of work went into it, and, and now watch out, the baby's coming, okay? And... Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> Not even close, they said. That's probably true. Thanks, Constance, for that. Well, this is a time of, of Thanksgiving. We have many things to be thankful for, but one of these things should be the, pre the, the preservation of the Bible through the ages. Now, if you believe the Da Vinci Code or uh, blogs on the internet, the Bible is totally unreliable as a historically accurate presentation of who Jesus is. But that's not the case at all. It is true that we don't have the original manuscripts, but we have so many and early copies of those manuscripts that we can, we can ascertain the original text with great confidence. And as I was studying for this, for this sermon, I came across some pictures of, of, a, of an early manuscript. Well, actually, it's not really early. That, that just shows the loving care that's involved in these manuscripts. Okay? This was a manuscript, or, or a copy of the New Testament, made over 1,000 years ago, uh, and about 900. And uh, you can see the beauty of the workmanship of that picture of Mark. Amazing, the, uh, imagine the care that went into that. And the second picture shows us the first page of the Gospel of Mark in that manuscript. Now, the reason I call it a study Bible is, as you can see here, there's only a little bit of the Greek text, the actual verses of Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and the rest of it's a commentary of those verses. But again, see the workmanship and the loving care that went into this. And that's the way the, 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 the Bible was copied. Now, today's message is also is something to be thankful for. The, the, the miracles we're going to see are amazing and should cause us thanks. So turn your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7.
Mark chapter 7, verse 18. I'm going to read down through chapter 8, verse 2. So this section is a set of miracles that Jesus did after he had abolished the clean, unclean distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And he taught that the real problem was the heart of each individual, not some outward uh, expressions of uncleanness. And so Mark writes this, beginning in chapter 7, verse 24. Actually, I said that verse 18, but it's actually verse 24 where I'm going to start. So in verse 24, Mark writes this, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did, and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose, light, whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in, in bed, and the demon was gone. And then he returned from the, from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his finger into the ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathah, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus, changed, excuse me, excuse me, Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealous they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And then in chapter 8, in those days he went again, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for preserving the, the scriptures. Thank you that in it we can hear from you. Your will is found in your word. Father, we pray, teach us your will from this text this morning. Uh, we need the work of your spirit to convict us and teach us. We pray that the result is Jesus' glory. Amen. How many of you here were, were alive on December 7th, 1941? There's a, just a few people here, okay? Not many. Well, on December 7th, 1941, a Japanese commander by the name of Mitsuo Fujita led the surprise attack by the Japanese Naval Air Forces 
attacking the naval and air forces of uh, the United States on the island of Oahu. Uh, Fujita hated Americans because of the way Americans and, and, and Westerners treated the Orientals back in the early 1900s. And he was overjoyed at the success of the mission that he had planned. Now, back in America, Jacob DeShazer, an American bombardier in a, in a, in a squadron of American bombers, when he, when he heard about the Japanese attack, he wanted revenge. And so he volunteered to take part in the first American attack on Japan when, in the famous Doodle Raid when Army bombers flew off of a Japanese aircraft carrier in 1942. Unfortunately, he was captured by the Japanese and spent the rest of the war in a brutal prison camp. He was tortured, brutally beaten, poorly fed, kept in solitary confinement for most of the time, and his hatred for the Japanese just grew and burned. But while he was in prison, the Japanese gave him a Bible, and he could only have it for three weeks. In those three weeks, he devoured it night and day, and he recognized that Jesus had forgiven his sins. And he recognized also that Jesus wanted him to forgive others. And so he decided that he needed to forgive the Japanese, and he vowed to return to Japan as a missionary. And he did that. So after the war, the, the Japanese pilot, Mitsuo, Mitsuo Fujita, he was involved in some of the war trials in, in Tokyo. And one day, he had got off the train in Tokyo, and he saw a man handing out some pamphlets. He grabbed the pamphlet, and it was titled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan, written by Jacob DeShazer. To make a long story short, Mitsuo Fujita was convicted by this pamphlet and became a follower of Jesus. And he and Jacob became friends and often did evangelistic campaigns together. And eventually, Mitsuo Fujita came to the United States and spent many years evangelizing here in the United States. Both of his, of his daughters are married to, to Americans. And, and you see in this story the amazing uh, redemptive and reconciliation work of God that can change enemies into friends. And that's something we need. We need that redemption and reconciliation across all peoples in God's church because the face of America is fundamentally changing. I read some statistics. In 2008, one-third of the population of the U.S. was non-European, that is, non-white. In 2040, one-half of all Americans will be non-Europeans. And by 2050, whites will make up just about 40% of the population. Hispanics will be almost 30%. Blacks, almost 15%. And Asians, about 15%. So in the past, the, the church tended to run away from demographic changes. But we can't do that. We can't do that. We need to learn how to be a force for reconciliation in our, in our area, in our city, in our, in our state, in our, in, our, in our world for that matter. And this passage is not only all about who Jesus is, it's all about breaking relational barriers. So my outline is this. 
I entitled it just the word same, and that will become clear as we go on. And what we're going to do is this. We're going to look at the context. Then we're going to look at the accounts of these three miracles where Jesus shows great compassion to people who were, quote, unclean. And then we'll look at the consequences for us. The point is this. Jesus has the same compassion, the same power to meet the same needs of all people because we are all the same. The disciples really needed this lesson. It took them a long time to, to get that idea. And we need the lesson also. So let's look a little bit at the context. The context is Mark is, is again, in his, in his Gospels, answering the question, who is this man? And he's writing to reinforce and stabilize the churches who were being pressured by persecution and also by the, by the issue of the Jew-Gentile makeup of the church. So Mark, Mark is stitching together miracle after miracle, testifying to who Jesus was. He's the Son of God and the Messiah, and the one who had the authority to bring in the church as the new expression of this kingdom. And these three miracles specifically demonstrate that the Gentiles being brought into the church really was part of Jesus' plan. Now, as you read these miracles, it kind of seems like these miracles are repeats. It's like same song, second verse, or deja vu, or uh, a TV repeat, or a movie sequel. In fact, I thought about entitling the message, Jesus, the sequel. But uh, what Mark is doing is this. Mark is showing that Jesus did the same types of miracles with the Gentiles that he did earlier with the Jews. What he's saying is Jesus went directly to the Gentile world to demonstrate that the clean-unclean distinction between Jews and Gentiles was gone. And he demonstrated that the kingdom was open not only to the Jews, but to the rest of the world, to the rest of us who the disciples still thought were unclean. Now, there's one other really quick issue I want to talk about, just, just in a couple of minutes, another context issue. that is the issue of miracles. These miracles are, 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 are crucial to Mark's argument. But you know, if, if you read popular books or go on, go on the web, there are many people saying that miracles don't happen. So why, why can we believe? Why can it be, we believe that it's reasonable to accept that miracles really happen? Now, I could go on for a long time, but I don't have time. So here's just, just four, four reasons. The reasons are this. First of all, if the God of the Bible exists, then miracles are possible. That's pretty simple, isn't it? And there's enough evidence to demonstrate that it's reasonable to believe that God exists. The second reason, miracles do not contradict science. Many people say they can't believe in miracles because it contradicts science. But it doesn't because science deals with natural, regularly occurring events, and a miracle by definition is not that. It's supernatural. And so when a scientist says that there can be no miracles, he's not talking about, he's not saying, he's not, well, science has not proved that. He's basically talking from his presuppositions, his natural presuppositions, that there is no God and there is no miracles. But many, many scientists believe that miracles do happen. 
So that was the second one. The third is that the existence of God and his miracles uh, makes the best sense of some of life's mysteries. Some of the mysteries like, how did the universe get here? Or the mystery of DNA. And, and, and the incredible complexity of, of some of the biological systems. Or even the evidence that miracles do exist. The fourth reason is this, that there is mounting evidence that miracles do happen. Now, so that makes it reasonable to believe that what Mark's writing here actually happened. Now, if you have more questions about that, I've got a lot more information, so feel free to come up and ask afterwards. Well, let's get to the passage. So in the first miracle account, we see Jesus' compassion for quote, an unclean Gentile woman. And by unclean there, I'm mentioning, I'm saying that it's not Jesus who thinks they're unclean. It's the disciples who still think they're unclean. Okay. So the setting is this. They are in enemy territory. It's like Jonah going to Assyria in one sense. Jesus had just concluded this teaching about getting rid of the unclean, clean distinction, that the problem is the heart. And he takes this trip this walking trip, maybe 50 to 60 miles from Capernaum to Tyre. The whole trip, the circular trip, was maybe 150 miles. That would have taken a number of weeks, or maybe even months to accomplish. And now Jesus and his disciples are in unclean territory. Tyre and Sidon were extreme examples of Gentile paganism. It was the first century version of Las Vegas. They were in unclean territory, dealing with an unclean woman who had a daughter with an unclean spirit. Not only in unclean territory, but they were in enemy territory. Uh, Josephus, a historian about the time of Christ, he wrote this about the Tyrians. The Tyrians are notoriously our most bitter enemies. So finally, in, in setting the scene, Mark says that Jesus wanted to be alone, but he couldn't be. Now, Mark doesn't explain why. Evidently, the reason why wasn't important to him and, more, and not important for us to know. But the point is this, what he's getting across is simply that Jesus goes to this place to be alone, and yet he's already known. Just like the Jews, many of the Gentiles knew who he was. And they, and they flocked to him just like the Jews did. They are just like the Jews. Um, and then there's the woman. She was a woman with no hope, a woman in a male-oriented culture, an unclean Gentile, from an extremely pagan and enemy culture. And then she had a daughter with an unclean spirit. So she begs Jesus, Jesus, heal my daughter. And so they had this little conversation. Jesus' reply to her is, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread 
and throw it to the dogs. Now, now many of us today are uncomfortable, even offended by what Jesus said. But the woman wasn't offended at all, it seems like. And one thing Jesus said gave her hope. He said, let the children be fed first. See that word first? That was something that I bet she camped on. She recognizes that what Jesus was saying there. It's not that the Gentiles are excluded. They're just not Jesus' first priority in this, in, this, in this time period right then. He was kind of saying to her, no offense, but this is my, this is my priority, to either to teach my disciples or to go to Israel first. Her response was amazing. Her response in hope says, she said this, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What an amazing response. You see, she gets Jesus' parable. She gets the illustration that Jesus is using there of the children and the, and the, and the dogs eating the crumbs. And she acknowledges, yes, Lord, I am unworthy. Yes, Lord, I'm not a Jew, and I recognize that your ministry comes first at this time. But she goes on. Not only does she recognize her humble position, but she affirms Jesus' generosity and grace when she says, but even, even the leftovers are enough for me. Even the leftovers are enough for us Gentiles. She gets it when the disciples didn't get it. And so Jesus is amazed. He says, because you said that, your daughter is healed. And what an amazing miracle. He didn't even have to make a command. It's almost just like he thought it and it happened. And just think about the result. Just imagine. Uh, just imagine this woman anxiously going home to see her child. Before, there had been great turmoil in the home. But now she finds her daughter quietly on a bed. And the turmoil was replaced with unspeakable joy and peace. What an amazing thing. And so it's amazing for us also because what began with her makes its way to us. Dogs like you and me, we can become children of God also. And that's worth giving thanks. Take a look at the second story real quickly. Uh, I'm not going to have time to read it, so I'm just going to talk the way through it. And in the second miracle, we see an account where Jesus has compassion for an unclean Gentile deaf man. And the scene is this. Jesus and his disciples are continuing the trip. And it's a long walk. They go up north to Sidon, which is about 25 miles. Then they go east and south to the east side of the Sea of Galilee and, and the Decapolis area. That's 80 miles at least. That would be at least four days of walking 20 miles a day. When they get there, it talks about it might be a small group or a small crowd that these, these people bring to Jesus. This this deaf man. 
What's interesting is, is how the response of the crowd has changed in this area. The first time Jesus came to this area, the, the crowd responded in fear and telling him to get out of here. But this time when Jesus comes, they respond in hope and ask him to heal. What an amazing change, maybe because of what happened there before. And so much like the Jewish friends who brought the paralytic to Jesus, so these Gentiles, just like those Jews, bring this man to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus heals him. And he says, Mark writes, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be open. So why the touch? Why those things that he did? And again, there's lots of explanations about it, but perhaps a simple one is just that he wanted to communicate with this man who could not hear. And so he goes into his world of silence and communicates by touch. And doing that, he just shows his compassion. What an amazing thing. And so just as he touched, remember back in chapter, I think it's chapter one of, of, of Mark, just as he touched that unclean leper to heal him, a Jewish person, so now he's, he's touching this unclean Gentile to heal him. Doing the same thing that he did for the Jews, now he's doing it for the Gentiles. Showing his compassion equal to both groups. And so, again, think of the, think of the response. Just think about this, the, the joy, the, the, this man's family, the joy that they had for, for years not being able to communicate, and now they can. Joy unspeakable. And then look at the response of the crowd, and the response of the crowd points us back to the point of the, of the, of the story, which is Jesus. And they were amazed. It says, beyond measure. And he said, he does all things well. And he went and told all kinds of people about him. And they're responding just the same way the Jews did when he did miracles with them. And so, again, what began with this deaf man makes its way to us. Spiritually deaf and unclean people like you and I can be healed by Jesus to become God's children who hear his words and praise his name. And the last miracle shows Jesus' compassion for this large group of quote-unquote unclean Gentiles. And there's a dilemma. Jesus has been teaching and doing miracles, healing, and so the people have been with him for, for three days. And food's gone, and they're hungry. And what's interesting, Jesus says, this is back, in fact, this is the only time in Mark where Jesus actually says, I have compassion. There are other verses that says, well, actually, in, when, he, when he healed the 5,000 back in Jewish territory, Mark says he had compassion. But now, in, in, healing, in, in dealing with, these, with the Gentiles, Mark quotes Jesus saying, I have compassion on them. Again, pointing to his concern for this group of people. And he provides the fruit. 
And then there's the result. Mark writes this, all were satisfied. How many? Well, it says 4,000. That was probably a man, so it could have been 12,000 people there, something like that. But he says, all were satisfied. And then there's an abundance left over, seven baskets full. Now, it's dangerous to get into questions about numbers, but perhaps what, what, when you compare the feeding of the 5,000 where there's 12 baskets left over, and now the feeding of the 4,000 with, with seven baskets left over, perhaps this is what's going on. Jesus' first miracle is with the Jews, 12 tribes. And so he's presenting that I, I, I am sufficient for the needs of Israel. And now on this, when dealing with the Gentiles, there's seven baskets left over. He's sufficient and more than sufficient for the needs of the Gentile world for us. And what was the result? That was the result. Satisfied and overabundance. And so, again, what begins with this crowd of Gentiles makes its way to us. Today, Jesus, the bread of life, offers anyone new life. And that's something to be thankful for. Let me uh, uh, give some uh, observations and applications. What are the consequences for us and observations? Well, the main point again is this. Jesus has the same compassion, the same power to meet the same needs of all people because we are the same. Observation one, these miracles reveal Jesus' same divine authority and power, not just for the Jews, but for the rest of the world. The most important, again, important question from Mark was, who is this man? And he shows again that he has the authority and power of God. Again, not just for the Jews, but for the rest of the world. The authority to open the kingdom to the whole world, not just the Jews. The power the power to provide the needs and transform lives. So the question is, is Jesus number one in our life? Does he have that authority and power in our life? And specifically, is he number one in our lives when it comes to, to, to directing our thoughts and actions toward other people? Are we more like Jesus or are we more like the disciples? Do we really believe that Jesus can work with anyone? That Jesus could be involved with President Trump or the other political party or this other race or this other group of people? Or do we think there's some people that are outside of that, that are like unclean? That's the first observation. The second one is this. These miracles reveal Jesus' deep compassion, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. Remember but when Jesus said, I have compassion, why, why did he say that? Well, there might be three, three reasons why he said, I have compassion. One, it was true. Secondly, he was teaching his disciples that he had compassion for the world, not just the Jews. And the final one, maybe he's teaching us. Maybe he's teaching us that, that there's no person beyond the reach of his compassion, his love, his gospel. So how is our compassion doing? Jesus crossed barriers because of his compassion. Geography, religious, ethnic, language, culture. Are we more like Jesus 
are more like the disciples. Maybe we can th we're thinking deep in our mind somewhere, Jesus can't work with those people. Or God can't use me to reach those people. Who are those people you might we might have in our, in our thinking? Here's the third question, the third point. These miracles reveal that people are the same with the same deep needs and problems. Now, in the Galilean Jewish miracles, he healed spiritual problems, he healed health problems, he healed physical problems. He did the same thing in Gentile territory. He, he did the same. He healed health problems, spiritual problems, physical problems. This illustrates and reminds me that, you know, why did Jesus do that? It's because we all had the same problems. We all have the same needs. We are the same. This, this came home to me once uh, significantly back in the 80s when I was a short-term missionary in the Amazon jungle. And I was with, with the tribe, with the missionaries there, and, and it was just loincloths and bow and arrows. And as I began to observe, I began to recognize that, man, they really are just like me, just like us. You know, we worry about our kids. They worry about their kids. Well, it's a different kind of worry. We worry about them getting hit by a car. They worry about them getting bit by a snake. But it's the same. And we have the same needs. So we need to get past the cultural things and the skin things. Whether we're African-American or Asian or Latino or European, we are all the same. Being his creation, we all have infinite, or not infinite, but great value. We all have the same value. But being sinners in a sinful world, we struggle with the same problems. Sin's the problem. The gospel is the answer. One more point, and then we'll close. These miracles remind us of the barriers to compassion that we probably all have in one place or another. We're just like the disciples in one way or another. It took them years. It took Peter into Acts 10 before when he's dealing with Cornelius and, and God has to give him another, another dream of the clean, unclean food issue before Peter's ready to go to Cornelius. Took him a long time. And we are struggling with that too, probably. So we are in the same boat. Maybe there's some groups that we quietly dislike. Or maybe we have preconceived notions that devalue others. This is something I learned from Wayne. Thank you, Wayne, for these, these thoughts. So here's some examples that we might think. We might think God, God couldn't work in those people because of race or because of politics or because of what. That could be one thing we say, we think. We could think something like this. They couldn't have genuine worship because of the kind of music they do, they sing. Whether it's too upbeat or too old-fashioned, or whatever. Or another one, we just think, they don't have anything to teach me. I can't learn anything from them. But the truth is, all those are false. So how can we break down barriers to other people? I happened to be in a church in, in, in uh, Minneapolis last Sunday, and he gave just five points 
that are so great ideas of how, how to break down barriers. And it's acrostic using the word learn, L-E-A-R-N, okay? So here's the four real quick. Love them, okay? Grow in Christ and the ability to love others. Secondly, eat together. Diversify your dinner table. Okay? Third, acknowledge the history that's gone on between us. Four, read. You know, as, as, when Paul was writing to the Philippians, uh, who were seeking to be unified in the, in, the, in the progress of the gospel, he prays that their love would have wisdom with it. So it's not, a lot, not enough just to desire to help. It's the desire to be unified. We need wisdom. So I've got to read. There's a lot I need to read. There's a lot I need to talk about and learn. And the last one was network. Use our, the networks in our jobs and other places. Because we have connections. But we can use our networks to help people who don't have connections. So five things that we can do to break down barriers. So here's the conclusion. An illustration from Dr. John Perkins. It's a picture of the authority and power of Jesus to bring reconciliation to broken relationships. So Dr. Perkins was born into a Miss in Mississippi poverty, the son of a sharecropper. He fled to California when he was 17 because his older brother was murdered by a town, town marshal. He vowed never to return. But in 1960, God got a hold of him. He accepted Christ and became a follower, and so he decided to return to his boyhood home to share the gospel of Christ with those still living in the region. His outspoken support and leadership role in, in civil rights demonstrations resulted in repeated harassment and imprisonment and beatings. But he emerged from those terrible experiences with a deeper desire to promote, among other things, reconciliation. So despite dropping out of school in the third grade, He's written nine books. He's an international speaker and a teacher on reconciliation and leadership and other things. And for his tireless work, he's received six honorary doctorates. Amazing what God can do with a person. He's a picture of the power of God to bring people together because Jesus has the same compassion and the same power to meet the same needs of everyone. Because we're all the same. And that's worth being thankful for. Let's pray. Father, we have to admit that we are like the disciples. Often we don't get it. We don't get the, deep, the, the depth of your compassion and the depth of your grace. We're not just the Jews. We're not just us. But it's for everyone in the world, no matter who they are, from the greatest to the least, from the best to the worst. Father, burn this into our hearts. And, and by your spirit, by the power of your spirit, transform us into people who are reconcilers, who bring, help bring people into your kingdom 
and he'll bring people into the unified body of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.